0: Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for forty days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, People do not live on bread alone. 1 Corinthians 1023 23-33 I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but not everything is constructive. No one should seek their own good, but the good of others. Eat anything sold in the meat market without raising questions of conscience, for the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. If an unbeliever invites you to a meal and you want to go, eat whatever is put before you without raising questions of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it, both for the sake of the one who told you and for the sake of conscience. I am referring to the other person's conscience, not yours. For why is my freedom being judged by another's conscience? If I take part in the meal with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of something I thank God for? So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews, Greeks, or the Church of God, even as I try to please everyone in every way. For I am not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that they may be saved. Luke 22:19, 19, And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The word of the Lord.
1: invite you to pray with me. Our God of grace, as we open up our consciousness to um, ponder what you're saying to us, what we have to learn, uh, we ask that you would help us to be truly open And that you would do the mysterious work, we in the church talk about the Holy Spirit doing work inside of us that is not our work, and we ask that that happens now. That your spirit would make us soft inside and not hard-hearted. So that your words, and we do believe in this time we listen for your words, not the words of the preacher, but so that your words would fall on fertile soil and that the result would be fruitful growth. We come sometimes with pains and hurts and wounds. Sometimes we come more mad at the church. Sometimes sometimes there's such a mixture of emotions in this room you can't even summarize all of the experiences and emotions and backgrounds. So whether we come and we're just dipping our toes back into something that once ago meant something to us, or whether we're coming with a, with a, a deep joy and a freedom and a sense of we, we know you and you're real to us, or whether we come doubting every, every bit of the words that are sung and spoken here today, whether we come with hurts or whether we come with celebrations, we're all more of a mess than we care to admit. And... Your story of grace in the Bible tells us that we're also, at the same time, more loved and accepted than we ever imagined. So hear the longing of our hearts now that that grace would be true and that we would know it's true in the deepest places of our lives today. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So David Zoll, in his book, Seculosity, he has a chapter on culinary correctness. The religion of food. We have a lot of things going on with food these days. When I first moved to Sacramento, I'm thinking it was about 15 years ago, and people were starting to do cleanses. With religious fervor, people were telling their co-workers and their friends about the cleanse that they were doing. I talked to somebody the other day, so here we are 15 years later and these conversations are still happening, and they were swearing by bulletproof coffee. I hadn't heard of it. Do you know? Do you know about this? It'll give you something to give you something to Google during the the more boring parts of my message. (laughs) Bulletproof coffee. There's keto, paleo. Aren't they the same thing? Kind of. I don't know. There's plant based. There's vegan. There's vegetarian. There's carnivore. What? What's that? Pascari, yes, yes. Is that how you say it? Pescarian? Did I say it right? And so David Zoll says, diet has become the justifying story of our lives. Think about what that means. Diet has become the justifying story of our lives. And if you doubt that, you can find people who write things like this, like Alice Waters Um, wrote it and put it this way succinctly, every single choice we make about food matters at every level. The right choice saves the world. And so we asked last week the question of the week, which you can find the new question and you can fill this out for next week. Today there's a little card and it's also a contact card that you can use to... You know, tell us about yourself and get to know more about our church. But there's a question on the back, and it's the question of the week. And we said, "What is sinful eating?" And we got an avalanche of of responses, which goes just to show that certainly this is a, an area of great religiosity. I've never seen a page so full of answers. I can't. There's no way I can get I can get at all of these. But there's people who say. Um, What is sinful eating? Somebody says, the way I used to eat when I had undealt with anxiety, binge eating. Someone else says, uh, it can be eating in such a way that is wasteful or without hospitality or as a means of justification for oneself. Somebody else says, what is sinful eating? It's when I eat because I feel bad or stressed or lonely or sad or annoyed and not because I'm hungry. Someone else says sinful eating is shaming others for what they eat or where they eat. Or ignoring hunger or ignoring being full. Someone else says pickles. It is sinful to ruin cucumbers like that. Someone says when you choose Bud Light over Sierra Nevada. Someone said sneaking sugar cookies and apple crisp that me and my brother made. And that has a name attached to it. It's my daughter, Mabel. <laughs> I didn't do it. Someone else says, and I think these, this is meant to be the, a sinful combination, potato chips and red wine. Someone else said pork, shellfish, cloven hoof animals. <laughs> sinful eating. There's, um, I, I stumbled onto something new and I checked it out this week just briefly and I, my eyes kind of got wide at this, this YouTube vegan food drama that's going on. And I hope none of you are even aware of it. Don't waste your time. But it was interesting how there's these videos going back and forth and how incredibly intense and um, excited and angry people are getting about food one person saying you know well maybe your the cancer you got is because you're not eating vegan and so then that person sends uh, a YouTube video back and they're going back and forth and their colorful language is required in this exchange and it's really really intense as people are pushing their food choices out onto the world around them and into other people's lives. And it gets very personal. It gets very intense. And I was thinking as I saw some of it, I thought, isn't this interesting? If the topic of sexual choices came up it, with these same people, what would they say? Hey, that's what I do behind the bedroom door is my business. That's my body. Don't tell me what to do with my body. And someone says, no, I have opinions about who you sleep with, who you're attracted to, what you do before and after marriage. No, 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 that's my body. These same people. And I thought, that's interesting, isn't it? Once upon a time, our culture was much more, okay, we all know We all kind of know what we think about food, but we better stand on the corner and shout out, as modern YouTubers would do, shout out our opinions about sex. And we want to make sure everybody knows. It's flipped, right? It's the opposite now. We all know, okay, we got sex figured out. Food! (laughs) Yeah. You know, because with, with sex, we've been liberated, right? We're free. We know how it works. Well, in Corinth, in Corinth is the place where the letter of 1 Corinthians ends up, and this is a very personal ret- letter that's being written by the Apostle Paul to people who have very concrete issues that he's heard about. He's addressing these concrete issues. And in Corinth, apparently, there is something similar to that YouTube drama going back and forth between opposing parties within what was this, um, this church, this kind of rough-edged early house-meeting church. And some people are saying, hey, we're Christians, and Christians can eat anything. That cheaper meat that you can get that was used in sacrificial rites, hey, it's still made by God. And we get to display our freedom and liberation by the gospel to others by eating it. And there's another group of people saying, no, you're basically participating in the idolatry by eating that stuff. These other people would say, no, my conscience just feels like I'm If I'm eating that, I'm I'm just taking one step closer towards it, and it's dividing my heart, and it's tarnishing my devotion to God and to Jesus. And they probably even said something like, you know, this the age-old argument of the slippery slope. You know, sure, maybe it's not that terrible to eat just the meat from the idolatrous sacrifice that's sold cheaper at the market, But, I mean, if you start letting yourself do that, eventually you'll find yourself in the temple rituals themselves participating in all of it. And so Paul writes to them, and his answer really is kind of like this. Like he says one line, or one or two lines, and the one group would be saying, Yeah, see, he's with us! Just like the YouTubers today. And then he says another line, and, and then the other crowd is like, No, see, he's with us! And then hopefully they're both kind of starting to scratch their heads and go, "Oh, wait a second. What's what's Paul trying to say?" Both sides are getting it wrong. Both sides are doing what humans always do when we go about life without the gospel. We latch onto an enoughness paradigm, an enoughness program, and we get on our little hamster wheel of validation. Where we hope to prove that we, and probably not you, are doing enough. We are acceptable. And we'll do anything to convince ourselves that we're not a part of the problem. We've stepped in. We've had an awakening. And we've stepped in to know that we're a part of the solution. That's just humanity. That's just how we go about life in absence of what the Apostle Paul calls the gospel. And what... You might have noticed, if you were paying real close attention, or even if you're opening it back up now, as you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul doesn't say in this section, he doesn't talk a lot about the gospel in the section that we said, but in the surrounding context of this, the issue is dealt with before what we read. And it's very clear that where Paul is anchoring the drift of his argument is around this thing that Christians call the gospel. So, we like to go without the gospel. We like to go with our enoughness paradigm and get on our hamster wheel. But the Bible has something else for us. The Bible has brought us a justification narrative. And often, the amazing thing about it, eventually this justification narrative will get talked about as the gospel. But all along, for whatever reason, God saw it fit to use as one of the prominent metaphors. Food. Food is always there in teaching us about this justification narrative. Adam and Eve, they're not supposed to eat the... Why do we always say apple? The Bible doesn't say apple. I do that too. It's a fruit. But so whatever fruit. Maybe it was an apple. But yeah, fruit. Don't eat the fruit. But what was the lesson, the message... Is God saying to us, and to Adam and Eve, I am enough for you. You can trust me to fully satisfy you. What did they do? They saw it as an oppressive food restriction and sought false liberation. We're going we're gonna to be enlightened. We're going to eat this over here that you over there don't eat it all started right there in the garden we're still doing it today and it went on as the Israelites find themselves wandering in the desert for 40 years and what I'll give you another Sunday school question what does God provide for them manna what is it literally that's yeah that's what the word manna means what is it that's literally what it means because they didn't know. They'd never seen anything like this before. And what was God trying to say? I am enough for you. I will fully satisfy you. In fact, it'll be something you've never heard of before. So sometimes, you, some of you might need to hear this today. You've got a problem in your life. You've got an inadequacy going on. You've got a situation. God's solutions, he pulls them from places we could never imagine sometimes. So, manna, bread from heaven. They didn't have to do anything. He didn't say go out and hunt. He didn't say go plant a garden or a field. It just arrived. They just had to pick it up. Manna, I am enough for you. I will fully satisfy you. It's not just a food lesson. And the Israelites, rather than learn that lesson, they demanded what? Meat. Meat. Vegetarian, carnivore, see? It's nothing new. We need meat. And so Jesus ends up being the first person, the first Israelite, you can say, because he was an Israelite, to embody this message, and he does it for us. He embodies the message and he, he's in the desert fasting and he's tempted with that age-old temptation. God's not enough for you. God's not satisfying you. Make some bread over here and eat it. And Jesus quotes the quote from Deuteronomy describing the ancient Israelites and their manna experience. People do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus is the first person to not feel restricted and totally believe that God's not going to fill them enough, so they have to reach over here. Jesus says, after 40 days of fasting, even now, no, I'm going to trust. God will fully fill me, and I'll be okay. resisting the bread for the sake of spiritual filling. What's the Bible doing? Well, over and over the Bible's trying to help us understand that there's two different kinds of hunger. There's our natural, physical kind of hunger, and there's also a spiritual hunger. And we're so in touch with our physical sense of hunger. We're so in touch with it. We analyze it. We talk about it. We have different philosophies of what it means and whether, are you really hungry or are you just bored? And, you know, what's what's going on with this hunger? We're very in touch with it. But our spiritual hunger, the tendency is we're not very much in touch with it, and so in the Bible, we're constantly being drawn to think about it, and God uses our physical hunger as sort of the sign and the picture and the metaphor to help us understand our spiritual hunger. And so in Psalm 63, one of my favorite places in the Bible, it starts out this way, you, God, focuses on God-satisfying, You, God, are my God. Earnestly, I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you. It's a hunger language. In verse 5 of Psalm 63, I will be fully satisfied as with the richest of foods. You ever have like a perfect meal? Have you had like one of those perfect meals recently where you're, you know, the perfect on all levels. The texture's perfect. The level of salt, saltiness is perfect. There's that slight crunch, but there's also the softness on the inside. It was taken off the heat source at almost the exact five-second window in which it was not underdone and not overdone. So you didn't have to send it back you know we're so particular send it back you 5 seconds too long on the grill perfect meal and you didn't eat too much so you're not stuffed you feel horrible when you're stuffed no just the right i stopped early enough there was a little bit of appetizers at the beginning but they didn't ruin my appetite and then now i even have a couple little corners left for that perfect dessert and you make up your own, but I'm picturing a chocolate brownie. It's got chocolate chips in it and the perfect dollop of ice cream on it. It's starting to melt because the brownie is warm. And even that doesn't overstuff me and I can sit back and what do I do? I talk for a half hour about how amazing that feast was. Psalm 63 says, My soul will be satisfied as with the richest of foods. Ever ever get any sense of that with God? That's what God wants us to think about. I'm sorry if I offended any of you with any of my food descriptions there. It was could have been a vegan brownie and vegan ice cream. <laughs> Just trying to think back, you know, we got to be really sensitive. Psalm 63, my soul will be satisfied as with the richest of foods. I'm going to read for you a prayer about fasting that I wrote, and that when I'm in a season where I'm fasting once a week, which I haven't been in lately, but when I do, this is a, this is a prayer about fasting, as I'm beginning to fast and feeling how difficult it is to fast for a day. God, the aching increases and the weariness is setting in. Without you, my life is one long ache, one long craving for what is missing. You are satisfying me in life in some ways these years, but I crave more. I know that other hungers still hold too much sway. My belly pain represents that right now. With you, I can be deeply satisfied and have the nourishment needed to truly live. Without you, I'll die of malnutrition. Put your unglamorous food into my mouth and help me to trust it. We eat at the table up here each week. And Jesus talked about himself as the bread of life. The bread, I am the bread of life. See how the the gospel narrative just keeps going with this whole food analogy? Started with fruit in the garden, and it got to the point at the very end where it's the wedding feast of the lamb in the book of Revelation, in the end of the Bible. From fruit to feast. And Jesus said, I am the bread of life. He says, drink this cup, my blood. It's God once again saying to to us, we set aside our other hungers because God says, I will satisfy you. I will be enough. I will fill you. And that's the gospel. The gospel is, there is a fullness available to you in your life. And all the other hungers that there are, whether it's food or sex or achievement or money, whatever they are that are, we're racing after, and that we're agitated, and you know how you are when you're hangry, and you're kind of agitating, and you're rough-edged, all of the things in life that make us that way and that we get wrapped up in, the answer is always, I will satisfy you. And the gospel always says to you, if you're a Christian, And we we always get worked up. We always get agitated because we're always drawn to live from places not of the gospel. But the gospel keeps drawing us back. God's saying, you're forgetting again. I satisfy you. I fill you. You're fine. You're okay. Because in terms of our enoughness, Jesus carried the entire burden. You know, those YouTube dramas back and forth, it's just evidence that the enoughness burden the burden of validating yourself is just going to crush you and turn you into someone ugly in the end but it didn't with jesus jesus carried our enoughness burden and he even allowed it to crush him but it couldn't and and he carried not only carried that burden but pushed aside the giant stone of the of the tomb as he came out it couldn't crush him completely and so in corinth back to corinth and this dispute about food The gospel, the enoughness. Paul knows there's a gospel problem. It's not the food that's important, it's the gospel. The food might help the cause of the gospel or hurt it. It's not black or white. It's not black and white. And so it leaves both food groups in Corinth a little bit, hmm, wait, what's, he's not siding with us, but I don't think he's siding with them either. Because Paul's saying, look, your friend has you over for dinner. Eat the meat. Go for it. Eat. The gospel has freed you from saving yourself by your diet. Go ahead. The gospel, let the gospel shine amidst these friends who have invited you over. But wait. My friend is taking offense. My Christian friend is taking offense, offense that I'm biting into this. This meat that was the lamb chops that were half off at Herod's temple? Well, you imagine the person thinking, yeah, okay, uh, I'm in that situation, what do I do? Well, Yeah, I'm free, I'm free to do this, it's my right! Screw you and your, your restrictions. Paul says, no, 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 no. Now you're getting it wrong. Because if you, take the, if you have to push your liberation, your gospel freedom on everyone else, then you're being insensitive, you're not understanding, you're actually hurting the gospel in the other person's life. There's more going on here. If, the, if your gospel freedom has you not loving other people around you and considering where they are at, then you're not dealing with the gospel anymore. The, you've used the gospel to get off track and to just be all about freedom and liberation at all costs. So, he talks about considering the weaker person among you. That may sound like an insult, but it was a way for Paul to get underneath the language here and just to say, there might be other people around you who have a less developed sense of Christian freedom. But you you don't want to push them away. You want to help them get there. You want to take your time. You want to show that the gospel even leads you to put aside your momentary freedoms out of love for them. And so both sides were challenged, not just in food rules, but in gospel community. Basically this, the summary for both sides is, my true hungers are filled to overflowing. So, if possible, I'll eat freely. But if needed, I'll hold back, because it might offend someone over here. I never... Need to eat one way or the other. My needs have been my needs had been overfilled spiritually. And so when it comes to food sure, it's great to express the gospel with my eating freedom, but I don't need to. I'm, I'm you know, you know how in baking what you do with brown sugar, you pack it in, and you're supposed to. And that's a picture of the gospel. You know, God keeps packing until it's just spilling out over. That's what we have. And that's the confidence that you can have. And it kind of settles you and chills you out towards others and allows you to look and go, I'm I'm okay. I can say, what do the people around me really need? Let me just close with a feasting prayer. So this would be, A way to break a fast. (laughs) Um, Bread of life. I'm about to put some healthy food in my mouth. You could do something like this with every meal you eat. You have met me in this fast and fed me mysteriously. As I bite down, chew, and swallow, and reach for more, as I gulp and taste the sweet and savory flavors, I am celebrating what you have done through Jesus. I am feasting now because good news has come. You died for our sins. You are reconciling the broken world to yourself. You rose in victory over the grave, and that's the food that fuels and energizes my life. Your good news is the word that sustains me through the aggravations of this life. Fill my life with your gospel. Cheers. And amen. Will you pray with me? Our God of grace, fill us up. We can't fill ourselves. In many ways, you have shown and we see in our own lives. You told us through scripture, but we experience it ourselves, that our own greatest attempts to fill our life with satisfying things often just backfires. We need your help. Show us where we can dine. And then when we come and when we sit down, deal with us graciously. Even though we might refuse and turn our head away from the bites that are good for us, would you speak and sing to us and help our hearts soften that we might, that we might receive from you the grace and the gospel that you've given through Jesus Christ. In whose name we pray. Amen.